Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 83, A Trilingual Nation. In this episode, we're going to dig through the surviving documents from the reign of Henry II to try to figure out the state of language in 12th century England. At first glance, this may seem like a straightforward issue, but the problem is that England had become a linguistic melting pot. And the linguistic situation was a bit of a mess. Latin, French, and English were all in regular use. But few people spoke all three languages. Each language was largely reserved for certain uses by certain people. So this time, we'll try to sort through the documents and figure out what was going on. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com. And you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com. Just go to historyofenglishpodcast.com and link from there. The most recent bonus episode posted there looks at the history of words related to family members. You can find out if a grandfather is really grand and if a great-grandfather is really great. And speaking of the history of words, I want to mention a couple of other podcasts that have come to my attention, and I think they might be of interest to many of you as well. First, Ray Belli has put together a podcast called Words for Granted that looks at the etymology of particular words. Each episode is dedicated to one word, and if you love etymology, I think you'll love his podcast. Again, it's called Words for Granted. And since I'm mentioning podcasts about etymology, I should also mention Lexicon Valley and Away with Words. I'm sure many of you are familiar with those. They've been around for quite a while, but if you're not familiar with them, you should definitely check them out. So with that, let's turn to this episode. And this time, I want to explore the linguistic situation in England in the second half of the 12th century, and more specifically during the 35-year reign of Henry II, from the year 1154 until 1189. If this century was the Dark Age of English, these years were probably the darkest years of all. As we'll see, English writing essentially disappeared, and while English was in retreat, the role of French was growing by leaps and bounds. But let's begin with the situation on the ground when Henry was crowned as King of England in December of 1154. The Civil War of the past 20 years had finally come to an end, but the anarchy of that period left England in a pretty bad state. During Stephen's reign, royal revenues had fallen by two-thirds. Royal lands and castles had been granted to various barons in exchange for their support. So the royal lands had been diminished, and in the west, Welsh nobles had claimed several Norman castles. In the north, the Scots effectively ruled the northernmost part of England. So Henry's primary goal as the new king was to restore England to the condition that existed prior to the anarchy when his grandfather, Henry I, reigned as king. It appears that Henry II modeled his reign after that of his grandfather. Both Henrys put an emphasis on law and order, and both had very long reigns. In fact, they both ruled England for the same period of time, 35 years each. So Henry II considered his reign an extension of his grandfather's reign. He basically tried to pick up where his grandfather left off. That actually became Henry's official policy when he became king. Anything done since his grandfather's reign was presumed to be illegitimate unless Henry himself approved it. As I noted, Henry's predecessor, Stephen, had granted land and castles to his supporters, and some of his barons had built castles without any formal consent or approval. So Henry deemed all of those grants and castles to be illegal and illegitimate unless he confirmed them. The earldoms that Stephen had created were abolished, and most of the lands that had been confiscated were returned to their original landholders. Many of the new castles that were deemed to be illegal were torn down to ensure that the barons couldn't rebel and start a new civil war. In Henry's first year as king, hundreds of castles were demolished. Some accounts report that over a thousand were torn down, though most of them were probably little more than enclosed forts. Most of the barons and nobles consented to these actions, but a few objected, and Henry took direct action against them. In the north, 
Henry had to forcibly remove a prominent noble from his castle at Yorkshire. In the Midlands, another noble named Hugh Mortimer held on to three castles. Henry sent an army to the Midlands to force the issue, and Mortimer eventually submitted and recognized Henry's authority. But other than those exceptions, Henry was able to clean up the mess created by the anarchy with relatively little resistance. It appears that the nobles were longing for a return to law and order, so they went along with Henry's new rules. And if anyone tried to object, they had little chance to succeed because Henry could call on soldiers from throughout much of France. In terms of the actual machinery of government, Henry made sure that the exchequer was back up and running like it was during his grandfather's reign. Taxes started to roll in again, and royal revenues were increased. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I noted that the records of the exchequer were written down and rolled up so that they resembled pipes. These records were called the pipe rolls. There's one set of surviving pipe rolls from the reign of Henry I for the period from 1129 to 1130. But all of the pipe rolls for the next 25 years were either lost or never even written down. However, the pipe rolls started to be maintained again as soon as Henry II came to the throne. Beginning with Henry's first year as king, there's a continuous record of the exchequer's activities. All of these financial records provide a wealth of information about this period. So, the office of the exchequer was back up and running again. But you might remember that there was another important government office during the reign of Henry's grandfather, and that was the chancery. The chancery was the office that prepared and issued writs and charters and other official documents. Again, some of those documents survive, and we actually have lots of chancery documents from the period shortly after Henry's reign. So Henry breathed new life into the English bureaucracy, and lots of official documents started to be produced. Given the importance of the chancery, Henry needed to make sure that it was in good hands. So one of his first acts as king was to appoint a new chancellor to oversee that office. Henry asked the Archbishop of Canterbury to recommend someone for the office, and the Archbishop recommended his archdeacon named Thomas Becket. Becket was named as the new chancellor, and he quickly became one of Henry's closest friends. Now, if you know a little bit about this period of English history, you probably know the name Thomas Becket. He was a very important figure as the royal chancellor, but he became even more important when the Archbishop of Canterbury died a few years later, and Henry nominated Becket for that position. At that point, Becket became the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and his close relationship with Henry quickly came to an end. We'll look at all of those developments next time. But for now, we'll leave Becket as the new chancellor, in charge of the office that was producing all of those official documents. And speaking of those documents, virtually all of them were written in Latin. English had quickly fallen out of use in government documents after the Norman Conquest, and since then, Latin had been used almost exclusively in writs and charters and other official documents. By the way, this was true throughout much of Western Europe. Local vernaculars were rarely used in official documents. Even in France, the bureaucrats used Latin, not French. So, after the Norman Conquest, England came into line with the rest of Western Europe by using Latin for those documents. And, of course, the Church also used Latin. And since Latin was considered an international language at the time, most literature and other documents were also usually composed in Latin. But around this point, in the mid-1100s, Latin started to get some competition, and it started to lose its monopoly over written documents. That new competition came from French. From around this point in our story, more and more documents started to be produced in French. And that was true in England as well as on the continent. In fact, the increasing popularity of French only served to push English even further down the totem pole. We've seen some evidence that French was emerging as an alternative to Latin in earlier episodes. A few episodes back, I noted that the great French epic poem, The Song of Roland, was composed in French around the year 1100. And that showed that French had started to achieve an elevated status, and authors and scribes were willing to use it instead of Latin. 
In the decades that followed the Song of Roland, other French texts began to appear. Classical works from Greece and Rome were translated into French, and legal documents started to be composed in French. Even in England, scribes were starting to use French instead of Latin. In fact, in the mid-1100s, an English scribe put together a summary of English laws, but he wrote it down in French. The document purports to be the laws of Edward the Confessor, as confirmed by William the Conqueror. So it's a compilation of English laws. Most scholars agree that it was composed in the mid-1100s, probably between 1130 and 1150, so at some point during the anarchy. It's called Laus Willem, literally the Laws of William. This particular law book is fascinating for a couple of reasons. First, it implies that law enforcement officials were speaking French, not English. So perhaps the author felt that there was a need for an English law book written in French. But more importantly, it shows that Latin was losing its monopoly over the law and legal documents. Another sign of the growing influence of French as a written language was the increasing amount of romance literature that was being composed in French. A few episodes back, I mentioned that the troubadour tradition of southern France was moving north, and it merged with the epic poetry tradition of northern France to produce a new type of literature called the Romans, or Romance. That term, Roman, was used because most of those works were composed in the rustic Roman language. In other words, they were composed in the local French vernacular rather than the formal Latin. As I've noted before, that's how a language like French came to be known as a Romance language. And since those stories often involved themes of love, that led to the secondary sense of the word as a love story. And that gave us Romantic literature. Well, in the second half of the 1100s, several of these new Romans appeared. And as the name indicates, they were composed in French. These Romans were usually based on historical events and famous leaders of the past. Many of them were about the ancient heroes of Greece and Rome. And Charlemagne was another favorite subject. Well, in Normandy, a poet and writer named Was decided to get in on the action. He composed one of these French poems, or Romans, and he also looked to the Greeks for inspiration. But beyond Greece, he looked to Britain as well, specifically the legend of King Arthur. A few episodes back, I noted that Geoffrey of Monmouth had produced an extremely popular book called The History of the Kings of Britain. It was released in the 1130s, and it was read throughout Europe. It purported to be a history of Britain, even though much of it was based on myth. It said that Britain was founded by a Greek hero named Brutus, who was descended from the Trojan hero Aeneas. And the line of kings that followed culminated in a great king named Arthur, who defeated rivals throughout Europe. Well, Was took this purported history, written in Latin, and he reworked it as one of these new Romans composed in Norman French. His new work was called Le Roman de Brut, literally The Romance of Brutus. The poem was completed and released in the year 1155, the first year of Henry II's reign as King of England. And the poem was dedicated to Henry's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Though Wass's poem was based on Geoffrey's earlier book, it wasn't a literal translation. It was composed in verse, so it was a long, epic poem. It also contained a lot of dialogue and emotional content that wasn't in Geoffrey's original version. The poem is most famous for its section dealing with Arthur, because Was added a couple of new features to the story. It was Was who invented the idea of the Knights of the Round Table, a table where all of the knights in Arthur's court had equal status. He also added contemporary features, like knights fighting in armor on horseback. So Arthur's court starts to take on contemporary medieval features, even though it was set in the distant past. Again, Was's poem was written in Norman French, so that added some interesting features as well. In Geoffrey's original Latin version, Arthur's sword was called Caliburnus, or Caliburn. Was gave us a French translation of that Latin name. Escaliborque, or as it would come to be known, Excalibur. 
So we now have Jeffrey's Latin version and Wass's Norman French version, but we still don't have an English version of the story yet. It'll be another half century before we get an English version of Wass's poem. So once again, note how the story of Arthur gets to us: first as a Latin text, then as a French poem, and then finally as a Middle English translation. And that tells you a lot about the relative status of Latin, French, and English as written languages. Latin came first. French was emerging as a secondary written language, and English was largely ignored. It was an afterthought. A few years after Wass completed his version of the Arthur legend, Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter Marie married the Count of Champagne in northern France. Now, this was Eleanor's daughter from her first marriage to the King of France, and Marie ended up being an important patron of the arts, just like her mother. One of the poets that Marie supported at her court in northern France was named Chrétien de Troyes, and Chrétien was also fascinated by the emerging legends of King Arthur. He also composed a series of stories about Arthur and his knights, but whereas Wass presented Arthur as a historical figure. Chrétien was more interested in telling some good stories, especially stories involving love and romance and infidelity. He composed five separate works about Arthur and his knights, and those five works are considered to be the first fully realized Arthurian romances. It was Chrétien who moved Arthur's court from the Welsh city of Caerleon to the fictional location of Camelot. Chrétien was also the person who introduced the storyline involving a Grail with magical healing powers, and this later evolved into the search for the Holy Grail. For another one of his stories, Chrétien claimed that his patron Marie gave him the idea for the story. It's the story of a knight who tries to rescue Guinevere after she's been kidnapped. The knight faces many challenges along the way, and he encounters many different people, including a dwarf who drives a cart. And forces the knight to ride in it. When the knight finally finds Guinevere, they fall in love and have an affair. The story was called Le Chevalier de la Charrette, literally the Knight of the Cart. But the story is more commonly known today by the name of the knight who was the focus of the story. His name was Lancelot, and this was the introduction of Lancelot to the Arthurian legend. So, if we're to believe Chrétien. The character of Lancelot was at least in part the brainchild of Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter Marie. So now we have almost all of the major characters and components of the King Arthur legend. Over the next two or three centuries, other writers would expand on these characters and storylines, but the basic pieces were in place by the time Chrétien completed his romances around the year 1181. Now, before we leave the story of Arthur. I should mention one other interesting tidbit. It was during this period that the remains of Arthur and Guinevere were supposedly discovered at an abbey in Glastonbury in southwestern England. According to the story, Henry II was informed by a Welsh minstrel that the area around Glastonbury had once been known as Avalon, and the real-life King Arthur had been buried there in the cemetery of the old abbey. Henry was apparently intrigued by the story, and he passed on the information to the monks at the abbey. Some time later, the monks excavated the area where the grave was supposedly located, and guess what? They found the skeleton of a man, and they also found some other bones and a lock of hair, which they presumed to be the remains of a woman. In the grave, they also supposedly found a lead cross, which bore the following inscription. Here lies buried the famous King Arthur in the Isle of Avalon. Other accounts suggest that the inscription also mentioned Guinevere as well. The bodies were removed from the site and were placed in a tomb in the Abbey Church. And for some time after then, it was widely believed that the remains of Arthur and Guinevere had been discovered at Glastonbury. Unfortunately, all of this evidence has been lost. The remains disappeared after the monasteries were dissolved in the 1500s, and the lead cross disappeared in the 1700s. So all we're left with is a really fascinating story. 
So were those bones really the remains of Arthur and Guinevere? Well, excavations in the 1960s confirmed that the monks did indeed dig a large hole in the cemetery, and it's generally agreed that they pulled some bones out of that hole. But beyond that, most historians are skeptical, and it's generally agreed today that it was all a big hoax. The biggest clue is the inscription on that lead cross. It refers to the body as the famous King Arthur. Well, I've noted before that there are a few passing references to a Celtic warrior or military leader named Arthur who lived around the time of the Anglo-Saxon invasions. But those references never mention him as a king, which they almost certainly would have if he had been a king. In fact, Arthur isn't mentioned as a king until Geoffrey of Monmouth's history in the early 1100s that I mentioned earlier. So it seems highly unlikely that the cross would have identified the body as the famous King Arthur, unless it was added at a later date. Another important piece of evidence is the fact that much of the abbey had burned down a few years before. It was in bad shape, and the monks desperately needed money to rebuild the abbey. So a lot of historians think that the whole excavation was a publicity stunt to generate interest in the abbey and to help raise money by making it a tourist attraction for pilgrims and other visitors. Other theories also abound, and to be fair, some people still believe that it really was Arthur's remains. Whatever the truth, it confirms that people of the late 1100s were fascinated by the stories of Arthur, and most of them thought he had been a real-life king at some point in the distant past. I think the important thing to take from all of this is that the various parts of the Arthurian legend were primarily composed in French during a period in which French was starting to emerge as an alternative to Latin. These poets and writers were some of the first people to use French as a literary language. And thanks to the influence of Henry and Eleanor, this French literature was also spreading to England. And all of this raises an interesting point that often gets overlooked. King Arthur may have been the legendary king of Britain, but the only people who could read these stories early on were those who could read Latin and French. That meant that the primary audience for these stories were the French-speaking nobles in France and England. But what about all of those other people in England who couldn't speak French or Latin? The common people, the peasants, the English speakers. Well, it's unclear if they embraced the story in the same way as the nobles. If they knew the stories of Arthur, they knew them through translations. And this may help to explain why the peasants and the common people ultimately invented a hero of their own, a common man who fought against the crooked nobles. His name was Robin Hood. And from the very beginning, the stories of Robin Hood were composed and sung in English. The legend was passed along in songs and ballads, so they passed on in the oral tradition. You didn't have to be literate to know about Robin Hood. So early on, there was an interesting class distinction between the legend of Arthur and the legend of Robin Hood. The nobles read about Arthur in French, and the peasants sang about Robin Hood in English. But as the Arthurian legends were gradually translated and composed in English, some of that original class distinction eroded over time. So this is probably a good point to transition from written languages to spoken languages. As we've seen, the state of the written languages was pretty straightforward. Latin was the main language, with French rapidly growing as a secondary language, and English was nowhere to be seen. But in terms of spoken languages, the opposite was true. The vast majority of people in England spoke English as their native language. French was the second most common language, and Latin was mostly limited to people in the government or the church who had been trained and educated in Latin. So there was an interesting dichotomy between the written languages of England and the spoken languages of England. As we know, English may have been the most commonly spoken language in England, but it was stigmatized and held in very low regard. The preferred languages were French and Latin. French was the language of the nobles, and Latin was the language of the church and the scribes. 
So, in terms of actual speech, all three languages were in common use at the time, and each had its own purpose and its own audience. And that was just in England, in Scotland, in Wales, and Cornwall. Most people still spoke Celtic languages, and in Northern England and Scotland, the Norse influence was still very strong. And in those regions, there were probably people who still spoke Old Norse as their primary language. And remember that English itself was highly fractured. English speakers in the South couldn't always understand English speakers in the North, or vice versa. So, if you can imagine all of these different languages and dialects being spoken in the same vicinity, well, it could be very confusing if you were traveling around and interacting with people. And the burgeoning towns and cities attracted a lot of these people who were forced to interact with each other on a day-to-day basis. As you might imagine, in that linguistic environment, communication was a constant problem, and translators were in high demand. In Old English, the word for translate was awanden, from the same root as the word wind. It literally meant to wind or turn from one language to another. The French word translate comes from a Latin word which had the exact same meaning. It literally meant to carry over or bring over, and it was used in the sense of switching or moving from one language to the other. That word translate entered English in the early 1300s, as did the word interpret, and the Old English word awanden gradually disappeared. Another French word for an interpreter was a Latimer. It literally meant a speaker of Latin. And it was used to refer to someone who translated messages into Latin or from Latin. The word has largely died out in modern English, but it does survive as the surnames Latimer and Latimore. Both names originally referred to someone whose occupation was a translator, and it was common for occupations to pass from father to son. So over time, many occupations became surnames. There were a couple of places where interpreters were especially important. One place was the courts, where officials met to hear and decide disputes. Records of those legal proceedings confirmed that interpreters were used to translate between the royal justices who spoke French and the litigants and juries who often spoke English. And in fact, the proceedings themselves were sometimes conducted in Latin. So all three languages might be required to resolve a legal dispute. Another place where interpreters were often used was the church. As we've seen, Latin was the official language of the church, but many of the prominent clerics and priests were from France, and they spoke French as their native language, and most of the congregations spoke English. So all three languages were in use around the church. In a few cases, there were priests who could speak all three languages. Take the case of Gilbert Folliot, a prominent bishop during the reign of Henry II. It's reported that he preached fluently in English, French, and Latin. This report comes from Walter Mapp, who was active in Henry's court and wrote an account of various people and events associated with the court. Also during Henry's reign, there was a prominent monk in the east of England named Samson. And he eventually became the head of an abbey at Suffolk near the end of Henry's reign. Again, it's reported that Samson preached in Latin, French, and English, even though it was said that his English sermons were delivered in his native Norfolk dialect. A chronicle maintained at an abbey in the east of England in the 1150s mentioned that the prior of the abbey, named Alexander, was also fluent in Latin, French, and English. So a few prominent clerics could converse in all three languages, but in most cases the clerics relied upon translators. For example, there was an abbey at Ramsey near Peterborough, and a chronicle maintained at that abbey reports that the abbots had to retain an interpreter in the first half of the 1100s. Meanwhile, the Bishop of Lincoln during the reign of Henry II was named Hugh. He was a Frenchman that had actually been recruited to England by Henry, and it's reported that he didn't understand English at all, and he also required an interpreter when dealing with his English congregations. Another prominent cleric was William Longchamp, who was another Frenchman 
who eventually became the Bishop of Ely after Henry's death. And once again, several chronicles report that he didn't speak any English at all, so he also would have required an interpreter. So from these various sources, we can discern that most of the prominent clerics spoke French, and they almost certainly spoke and read Latin. But their knowledge of English was hit and miss. A few of them could preach in English, while most required someone to translate for them. So that's the church officials. But what about the government officials, the king and the barons and the nobles? Well, once again, most of them spoke French as their native language, but it appears that more and more of them were learning English as well. As one generation gave way to another and then another, those grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the original Normans were brought up in this multilingual environment. Many were the product of mixed marriages with mixed Norman and English ancestry. So by the mid-1100s, it appears that many of the nobles also spoke at least a little bit of English. This was also true for King Henry himself. Even though he was raised in Anjou in France, he was very well educated, and it's reported that he had some knowledge of every major language in Western Europe. This comes from an account written by Walter Mapp, who I mentioned earlier. Mapp was active in Henry's court, so he would have had some knowledge of Henry's linguistic abilities. But even though Mapp suggests that Henry could understand many different languages, Mapp says that he only spoke in French and Latin. So Henry could understand some English when he heard other people speaking it, but he never actually spoke English himself. This statement is reinforced by another story that was told by Gerald of Wales. So let me tell you a little bit about Gerald. Gerald was another prominent cleric and church official who was active in Henry's court. He was born in Wales of mixed Norman and Welsh ancestry. And Gerald is a good example of how the children and grandchildren of the Normans acquired other languages over time. He later wrote several histories and accounts of his travels. And from his writings, it appears that he could speak French, English, and Latin. And it appears that he also had some knowledge of Welsh. In fact, in the year 1188, he was selected to accompany the Archbishop of Canterbury on a tour of Wales, and it appears that he was chosen in part because he could serve as an interpreter. He later wrote two accounts of that journey, with very vivid descriptions, and he wrote some other accounts of that period as well. In his writings, Gerald mentions that the languages of Wales, Cornwall, and Brittany were still mutually intelligible. And then he turned his attention to English. Here's an English translation of his original Latin text. Quote, in the southern parts of England, and particularly in Devonshire, the English language seems less agreeable, yet it bears more marks of antiquity, the northern parts being much corrupted by the eruptions of the Danes and the Norwegians. The English spoken in the South adheres more strictly to the original language and ancient mode of speaking, a positive proof of which may be deduced from all the English works of Bede, Rabanus, and King Alfred being written according to this idiom. So apparently, Gerald was familiar enough with Old English texts that he could deduce that the Southern English dialects were much closer to those texts and the northern dialects were quite different. So once again, we see a very clear distinction between Southern English and Northern English. Gerald's writings are important to our story for a couple of reasons. First, he gives us some insight into the English language as it was spoken in the late 1100s. And secondly, he suggests that Henry II had at least some knowledge of English. In two different works, Gerald recounts a particular story about a man approaching Henry and addressing him in English. According to the story, Henry was in Wales, and one morning he heard Mass at a chapel, and then he got ready to leave. As he started to mount his horse, he was approached by a Welshman, and the Welshman addressed Henry in the Teutonic tongue, so in English. The man said, God hold thee, king, literally, God hold thee, king. But Gerald informs us that it meant, May God protect you, king. 
Gerald says that the man continued to speak to Henry in English while Henry stood there and listened. The man said that Christ had commanded that Henry should prohibit all work from being performed on Sundays, including the buying and selling of any goods. The man told Henry that he should pay due attention to the performance of the divine offices. And if Henry did that as king, all of his undertakings would be successful, and he would lead a happy life. Gerald says that Henry apparently understood what the man had just said, and he immediately turned to a knight who was serving as his interpreter, and he told the knight, in French, to ask the man if he had dreamt all of this. The knight translated the king's question into English for the man, and the man again addressed the king directly in English. So he replied to the king, not the interpreter. The man said that whether or not he had dreamt it, it was important that Henry do what he said. Otherwise, before the end of the year, Henry would be very troubled, and he would be unhappy for the rest of his life. The king seemed to disregard the warning, and he started to ride away on his horse. But then he suddenly stopped, and he ordered his attendants to call the man back so he could speak with the man some more. But the man was nowhere to be found. Now this story is presented as a foreshadowing of what was to come. Soon after this supposed warning, Henry faced rebellion from his sons and from his wife, Eleanor. We'll get to that part of the story in an upcoming episode, but I wanted to present this story here because it suggests that Henry could actually understand English when it was being spoken. He didn't need anyone to translate it for him, but he never actually addressed anyone in English. He only spoke French and Latin. To be fair, it's easy to read too much into this story, but Gerald told it in two different works, and he was very particular in both versions to emphasize that Henry understood what the man said when he spoke English. Now, even though Henry might have been able to understand English, it appears that that skill was not shared by his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. By all accounts, she didn't speak or understand English at all. She relied upon translators throughout her entire life. So, what can we take from all of this? Well, these are just bits and pieces of information. But if we put it all together, it appears that the nobles and the leading church officials in England continued to speak French, and they continued to be educated in Latin. But they were also starting to pick up English as well. Some spoke it fluently. And some could understand it when it was spoken, even though they didn't speak it themselves. Others continued to rely upon interpreters, but they were probably picking up bits and pieces of English along the way. So if English was infiltrating the highest levels of society, what was happening just below them, in the class of the lesser nobles, the bureaucrats, and the knightly class? Well, here it appears that English was even more common. At this level, there were lots of knights and squires with mixed ancestry, with both English and French ancestors. So bilingualism was even more common among the knightly class. This also included low-level administrators like stewards and bailiffs. They were people who routinely came into contact with commoners who spoke English, but they also spent a great deal of time at court where French was spoken. So it was common for members of this class to serve as translators, just as Henry's knight had served as his translator in that story told by Gerald of Wales. In fact, it appears that many knights in England primarily spoke English. That was really their first language, and they spoke a very rough French as their second language. From a later collection of letters and other documents compiled from this period called Materials for the History of Thomas Becket, we get an interesting story about a teenager in Normandy named Simon. It's reported that his father sent him to England in the 1170s so that he could teach French to the son of a certain knight there. So this suggests that many English knights needed tutors to teach them how to speak proper French. It was still important for knights to speak and understand French, but more and more of them had to study it in order to speak it correctly. Along these same lines, we have another account from this period from an English statesman named Gervais of Tilbury. He lived in England in the late 1100s, and he wrote the following, quote, 
It is custom among the greatest nobles of England to send their sons to be brought up in France in order to be trained in arms and to have the barbarity of the native language removed. So, again, the implication is that the French spoken in England had deteriorated. And if you really wanted to learn how to speak French properly, you had to go to France, or at least get a French tutor. Earlier, I mentioned Gerald of Wales, who wrote that story about the Welshman who spoke English to Henry II. Well, in another work by Gerald, he wrote about John Blund, who was an academic and philosopher from England. Gerald wrote that Blund learned French from his uncles, who had studied in France. He wrote that their accent was, quote, elegant and pure, and very different from the rough, corrupt French of the English, end quote. So again, these bits and pieces tell us that the knights and administrators and lesser nobles spoke a very rough French, not the proper French spoken across the channel. And all of that suggests that the French spoken in England was breaking down. The writer Walter Mapp, who I mentioned earlier, had a name for this type of French that was spoken in England. He said it was called Marlborough French. Around this same time, a nun at Barking Abbey in London composed the life of Edward the Confessor in French, and she dedicated it to Henry and Eleanor. In the introduction, she apologized for her French. She wrote the following, quote, I know the faulty French of England, which is where I acquired it. You who learned it elsewhere, correct it when necessary, end quote. So we've established that many of the nobles and clerics at the highest levels were starting to learn English, and now we've seen that most of the knights and lesser nobles were probably bilingual, and in fact, they probably spoke English better than French. Nevertheless, they still needed to speak French, and many of them tried to improve their French when they could. This takes us down to the next level, to the common people, the native English speakers. As I've noted before, we have only a few fragments of English writing from this period, but all of the evidence suggests that English speakers were increasingly influenced by the prominent status of French, and many of them were actively trying to pick up as much French as they could. Whereas the nobles could afford translators and interpreters, peasants didn't really have that option. If they wanted to communicate with someone who spoke French, they had to try to learn as many words as they could. Let's also keep in mind that French was the prestige language at the time. It was the language of the nobles and the high church officials. So English peasants acquired a certain admiration of the language. And then we have to keep in mind how I began this episode, with the increasing use of French as a written language for literature. So if you wanted to read and write, you needed to speak Latin or French. And French was clearly emerging as the more popular choice. So all of this started to have an impact on the English-speaking peasants. More and more of them started to pick up French words and use them in regular conversation. Even though we don't have any significant English writings from this period, we do have an account from John of Salisbury, who was an English diplomat and writer, and he eventually became Bishop of Chartres in France. John was an Englishman. He had no French ancestry and he spoke English as his native language. In his writings in the mid-1100s, he wrote that it was fashionable for English speakers to use French words in their conversations. So, there's a strong analogy here to the modern influence of English in other parts of the world today. The cultural dominance of English has meant that many English words have been borrowed into other languages. And, ironically, many modern French speakers in France have been frustrated by the adoption of English words. But in a way, it's sort of a modern form of payback, because the situation was reversed in England in the 1100s and 1200s. And unlike modern France, there was no academy of the English language to protect English from all of that outside influence. So during this period, it appears that French words really started to flow into English. There was also another factor at work, As we've seen before, English was highly fractured in England. English speakers in one part of the country had a problem communicating with English speakers in the other parts of the country. 
It was considered a rough peasant language that varied considerably. So French actually served as a lingua franca. If people spoke in French, it didn't really matter where they were from. So again, there was a strong pull to pick up as much French as you could. The lack of English documents makes it difficult to trace these developments. But if we compare the English documents that were composed before Henry II came to power with those that were composed soon after he died, there is evidence of some major changes. Let's take the Peterborough Chronicle. As I noted last time, it came to an end in the year that Henry became king. As we went through the Peterborough Chronicle entries, I tried to make a note when a new French word was introduced. Scholars who have examined the text have concluded that there are 29 words that were borrowed from French and used for the first time in the Peterborough Chronicle. That includes words like miracle, duke, countess, court, chancellor, council, rent, justice, war, and peace. But all totaled, there are only 29 French words in the entire chronicle. Shortly after Henry died, when scribes started to write in English again, one of the first documents to be written was a guide for monks called the Ancrenuisa, literally the Anchorite's Guide. That text has over 250 loan words from French, so nearly 10 times as many. And that's just one illustration of the increasing number of French words that English speakers were starting to use. I should also note that throughout the following century, as English writing gradually reappeared, there was an increase in the production of handbooks designed to teach English speakers how to speak French. Bilingual dictionaries used for translations became common. And this is more evidence that English speakers were trying to pick up as much French as they could. And just to be clear, it wasn't that English speakers were learning French per se. What they were doing is picking up a few French words here and there and using them in English conversations. So they were borrowing French words, not really speaking French. And you can imagine English speakers constantly asking, what's the French word for this? Or what do you call that in French? And this may help to explain the nature of those borrowed words. The vast majority of the words borrowed from French were words for things. In other words, they were nouns. In fact, the Cambridge History of the English Language reports that over 70% of the words borrowed from the Romance languages were nouns. English speakers weren't really borrowing new words into their core vocabulary. They were just looking for the right French word to describe a particular thing or idea. The result was an English language that was increasingly peppered with French words. And those French words were initially much more prevalent in the South, and very gradually spread to the north over time. As we put all of these pieces together and try to make some sense out of the spoken languages of England in the 1100s, a common theme starts to emerge. Whereas shortly after the conquest, English, French, and Latin each had very specific roles in English society, and they didn't seem to mix very much, now that was changing. At every level of society, the linguistic barriers were starting to break down. Many of the highest nobles and church officials were starting to speak English, at least as a second language. Many of the knights and bureaucrats spoke both English and French, but they spoke English better, and they were trying to improve and refine their French. And English-speaking peasants were routinely borrowing French words to supplement their normal vocabulary. All these once distinct languages were bleeding into each other. The biggest piece of evidence to support this conclusion can be found in a well-known quote from a document that was produced in the year 1177, in the middle of Henry's reign. I began this episode by noting that Henry made it an early priority to get the exchequer up and running. That was the tax-collecting office, so Henry needed that office to function like it did during his grandfather's reign to improve the revenues coming in. And to that end, Henry appointed a man named Richard Fitzneil as the head of the exchequer. His title was the Lord Treasurer, and he was tasked with getting the exchequer running again. Well, Henry was impressed with Fitzneil's work, 
and about twenty years later, in the year 1177, Henry asked Fitzneil to write a book about his work. The book was written in Latin, and it was called Dialogus de Scaccario, literally, The Dialogue Concerning the Exchequer. It's a great bureaucratic handbook, and it outlines the procedures of the exchequer at the time. But for our purposes, it contains one especially fascinating entry. In one part of the book, Fitzneil writes the following, quote, Now that the English and the Normans have been dwelling together, marrying each other, and being given in marriage, the two nations have become so mixed and intermingled that it's scarcely possible today, speaking of free men, to tell who is English and who is of Norman race. Now, Fitzneil specifically excludes unfree peasants from this passage. But for free peasants and free townspeople and bureaucrats and knights and squires, Fitzneil suggests that it was almost impossible to distinguish a Norman from an Englishman. Now, this may have been a bit of an exaggeration, but at the very least, it suggests that the linguistic distinctions that had once separated the Normans and the Englishmen had eroded over time. The two groups freely borrowed from each other, and a linguistic melting pot had emerged. There was a lot of linguistic instability, and that helps to explain what happened to English during the period when English writing disappeared. Next time, I want to illustrate how all of those French words were starting to pour into English. Even though many of those words won't be revealed until English writing reappears in the 1200s, they were almost certainly entering the language in the late 1100s. One area where French words came to dominate was in legal matters. Even today, most of our words associated with law and order come from French. And that's partly because the Normans, and then the Angevins, had to impose law and order. And no monarch did more to impose law and order than Henry II. So next time, we'll look at law and order, and we'll see how much of modern legalese can be traced back to Henry II. So until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. 